When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, everybody. So picking up from uh, question 17 for this, this is the second half, and we're going to do 17 through 35 here. Uh, if you were listening to the last one and I stopped abruptly, I apologize. I got caught by the uh, announcements and uh, I didn't want to, to to try and record through that. So I did stop a little bit abruptly on 17. So if you're like, oh, he didn't finish 17, then uh, let's, we'll talk about it later. Uh, I'll try it. If I can remember to, I'll talk about it at the, talk about it at the end. All right, questions 18 and 19 refer to another graph, uh, and this was a kind of a line graph about the uh, voter turnout in the United States, uh, midterm versus presidential elections. And just remember, overall, presidential elections are always going to have more turnout. People are going to value the presidential elections more than the midterm elections. So for us, we're coming up on 2022, the November elections, and just, you know, there's going to be less people that turn out. Um, it's just uh, the natural order of things. So 18 says, which of the following best describes a trend in the line graph above? So you have to be able to look at these things and make a decision about what the trend is. It's not going to stand out to you. The answer is C, voter turnout in midterm elections generally decreased between 66 and 2014. So uh, for me, when I was taking this, I, I took some, you know, I drew some lines because they, they give you some dates, 82 to 2010 in A. Uh, for B, it's 1940 to 1948, and then C, or excuse me, D is 1972 to 2008. And so draw some lines, you know, on there. That's what I did. Uh, and you can take a look, and it gives you a better visual representation. But the answer is C. Uh, number 19 says, which of the following is an accurate conclusion based on a comparison of the trends in the line graph above and your knowledge of voter behavior? Once again. Students, there are no late buses today. If you ride a bus, Sorry, I thought I had escaped the announcements, but I guess I was wrong. Uh, so there are no late buses today. All right. So anyways, uh, what's an accurate conclusion? So once again, you have to take a look at it and you have to, to take a look and, and make some conclusions. It's not The answer is not going to jump off the paper from you. It's you looking and interpreting. Now, the answer for number 19 is B. More citizens vote in presidential elections because there is more media coverage of presidential elections than midterm elections. Now, there is no data in there that supports anything about the media coverage. But that's a conclusion that you can draw based on the stuff from the data, okay, and your knowledge that the media coverage does cover the presidential elections more than they cover uh, midterm elections, okay? Uh, so just, once again, take your time with these. Think about all the things that it could possibly be. Cross out things that, you know, it, it might not be, all right? So cross out process of eliminations. Um, yeah. All right, number 20. There's a pie graph, and if you've if if you you've seen this pie graph before on, on my test, if you took the test, uh, number twenty says uh, which of the following accurately describes the information presented in the pie chart, and the answer is D. The U.S. Postal Service has the largest number of employees within the federal bureaucracy, and that's something that kind of sticks out because the Postal Service has the hugest chart, hugest part of the pie chart, and the number uh, says it as well, seven hundred fifty-eight thousand to the next biggest, which is defense, 
and 675,000. So you can see that, all right? Uh, and the rest of the answers kind of bear that out. 21, which of the following best explains the difference in the number of bureaucrats employed by the Department of Education and the Department of Homeland Security? Now, this one's not as easy as the first one, all right? So it's not as easy. And the answer is going to be C, the Department of Education primarily addresses state issues, whereas the Department of Homeland Security primarily addresses national issues. Um, so it's once again, you have to kind of take the data that you see there and make some decisions uh, based on your prior knowledge. Now, why isn't it the rest of them? Well, A says the Department of Homeland Security was created before the Department of Education. Once again, that's not true. The Homeland Security is the newest um, cabinet department. Okay, so it's, it's not, that's not true. So you can cross that one out if you don't know anything. Uh, the Department of Education receives its funding from Congress while the Department of Homeland Security works directly for the president. Well, they both work for the president because they're both cabinet positions and the funding comes from Congress for both of them. So that's not true. So we could cross that out. Process of elimination. And then the Department of Homeland Security hires more employees at the state level than the Department of Education. Well, no, they're both going to be federal. All right, so we crossed out all three of those because of our knowledge there. Now, 22 and 23 refer to a graph uh, that deals with uh, funding and uh, budget entitlement programs and defense spending. So we got to know a couple of different things there. What's entitlement spending uh, and what's, uh, what's going to be discretionary spending, I believe, is in this question. So 22 says, which of the following is an accurate statement about the information in the line graph? So here we're just looking at the graph and we're making a decision. So B is the answer and it says entitlement spending has steadily become a larger portion of the federal budget. And we can look at that and we can see because the defense spending is going to be trending down whereas the entitlement spending is trending up. So that sticks out pretty good uh, when we're looking at the graph. Uh, a defense spending has consistently been a larger part of the federal budget than entitlement spending. No, there's a pretty wide gap especially uh, in you know, 2000 or so, it is the largest. And then C says between 1980 and 2000, defense spending increased faster than entitlement spending. Once again, the, uh, the lines that we're looking at does not show that whatsoever. And then in 2000, entitlement spending passed defense spending as a share of the federal budget. Well, that's not true, okay? Because entitlement spending passed in 1972 or so and never looked back. Then number 23, based on the information in the line graph, which of the following is the most likely implication of entitlement and defense spending as a portion of the federal budget? All right, so once again, we have to kind of make some goodness gracious. Students, there's a beautiful day outside. Please go outside and wait for your parents to pick you up if you are not a bus driver. If you are with a supervisor, that's fine, but if you are not, you are not to be in the building. Please exit the building. It's a beautiful day outside. Have a good evening. I am so sorry. <laughs> Hopefully that's the last announcement. Uh, okay, so we were talking about 23 and uh, the implication of entitlement and defense spending as a portion of the federal budget. So the answer is going to be A, changes in entitlement spending put pressure on discretionary spending. So first off, we got to understand what is entitlement and what is discretionary spending. So let's do that first. So entitlement spending, that is um, money that you get regardless, okay, of whether you need it or not. It is stuff that Congress has kind of painted themselves into a corner with, where they have created past legislation, they've made programs that are going to, to require them to spend on, okay? So they don't get to not 
they don't get to decide, you know what, we're not going to spend on entitlement spending this year versus discretionary spending where they get to make the decisions. Well, let's spend this on that this year. Let's spend that here. Uh, they can make some decisions. They can make some changes. Okay. Uh, so changes in entitlement spending put pressure on this discretionary spending. So the stuff they're required to spend on can affect their discretionary spending because if they, they have to spend too much in the entitlement section, they can't spend as much in the discretionary stuff. Now, the other answers, let's talk about those very quickly. B says discretionary spending levels are set by law and cannot be changed. Well, that's not right. We just said the discretionary spending is stuff that's open for interpretation that they can spend how they want to. Entitlement spending is the levels that are set by law. Okay. Uh, C says congressional budget committees can ignore entitlement spending. No, they can't. They have to spend in those entitlement programs. Thanks, Social Security. They can't just decide, you know what, we're not going to send that out this year. Alrighty. And then D, Democrats and Republicans generally agree on increasing entitlement spending. Uh, not true. And uh, Democrats and Republicans don't agree on much of anything. All right, 24 and 25 have a table, uh, and it's about the electoral vote versus the popular vote. So based on the results shown in the table, which candidate won the election? Now, the answer is D, the Republican Party candidate. Okay, and we can see this because they hit the 270 votes for the Electoral College. Okay, that's the number you got to get. Now, the rest of the answers, the Democratic Party candidate, nope, didn't hit 270. They got to 266, and that was where they stopped, so they cannot win. Alrighty. The Green Party and the Reform Party candidate got no electoral votes. There's no possible way they could have won. So the only answer is D. 270 is the Republican candidate. Now, the next question, 25, based on the data shown in the table, which of the following statements is true about the Electoral College? Now, the answer is A. It can work against the principle of popular sovereignty when a candidate wins without winning the most votes nationwide. So if you look at the data, go back to it very quickly and look at the popular vote, you see that the Democrat won the popular vote, 50,999,897 uh, to 50,456,000. So 48% to 47%. All right, so it can work against the principle of popular sovereignty. Remember, popular sovereignty is things flow through us. They go through me and you. Uh, we get to make decisions. So the popular vote says the Democrats won, but the Electoral College says the Republican won. So that works against there, okay? To cross out the other ones, uh, if you're looking for a, uh, you know, cross a, a, a process of elimination, B said it creates a scenario in which electors frequently do not vote for the candidate they pledge to support. That typically doesn't happen. Uh, in fact, very rarely is an elector going to go against uh, their pledge. C, it undermines the rights of states to determine their own method of electing the president. N well, no, okay? <laughs> states don't get to do that. They get to run the elections, but they don't get to determine their own method of electing the president. And then D, it encourages independents and third-party candidates to run for office. Well, it actually discourages independents and third-party candidates. All right, question 26 through 29 has another long packet, uh, package a long passage, so I'm not going to go back and forth. I'm just going to answer the question and go over any content. Content, But I do want to address this question. It's about Federalist number 84. Now, that is not a required document. It is not something we ever talk about in class, but this is something they might do on the test where they give you a passage from something that's not required of you in the class and ask you to interpret it. So that's what this has done. So keep in mind, you might see this type of question. So let's run through it. Once again, I'm not going to constantly go back and forth because it is a long passage, but I would encourage you to take your time on questions like this. Be sure you read um, and reread the, the, the document, the passage, 
so that you can do the best you can. So 26 says, which of the following statements best summarizes Hamilton's argument? So the answer is B, listing rights will lead some to assume that government may regulate those rights. Okay, um, so keep in mind here that the Federalists were not all about the Bill of Rights. Uh, and the argument they're making here, listing rights will lead some to assume the government re may regulate those rights. So basically what Hamilton is saying is if you put the rights in writing, if you put them down, that's going to lead us to assume that because they are there, we can now regulate them as a government. So before that, we, we might, might not be able to regulate these things. But if you guarantee them, if you put them in writing, then it's something that we can do. Okay. Uh, 27, which of the following constitutional provisions limits the power of the national government in Hamilton's argument? Uh, that's going to be A, the enumerated powers in Article 1. All right, we're enumerated. Those are the ones that are written. You might see them as expressed. Okay. Uh, judicial review, uh, Article 3, supremacy clause. Uh, none of those things really matter towards the, the constitutional provisions that he's talking about. And then finally, supporters of Hamilton's view that a Bill of Rights could be dangerous to liberty could point to which of the following cases? Once again, we have to use some of our required court case knowledge here. You could see this uh, to understand this. And the answer is going to be A, Shank versus the U.S. And just a reminder, this case dealt with uh, Shank being a uh, socialist leader and protesting the, the, the draft from World War I. And he was arrested based on the Espionage Act. Okay, so the dangers to liberty here. Shank was expressing his free speech, but it got shut down because of the time that he was doing this. All righty. Now it would not be Engel versus Vital that deals with uh, prayer in school. The New York Times versus the U.S. The New York Times won that case, and they were able to print the stuff they wanted to. And Tinker versus Des Moines, they won that case, and their rights were backed up. So the only case that really shows uh, an individual's civil liberties being kind of crushed there was, was the Shank case. All right, 29. Based on the text, which of the following statements would the author most likely agree with? Uh, and that is going to be C. The Bill of Rights could potentially be used to limit civil liberty. And once again, that is a yes because they're written down now. And so we can work with those and, and mess with those if, we, if the government wanted to, to an extent. Okay? All right, question 30 and 31 deal with another long passage. So once again, I'm not going to go back and forth to the passage. I'm going to rely on you having uh, the ability to read and find the answer uh, in the interpretation because that's what you have to do here. So number 30 says, which of the following statements is most consistent with the author's argument in this passage? And the answer is C, undermining freedom will extinguish both freedom and equality. So once again, I'm not going to go back and forth to the passage, but the passage was about the fact um, that it's about equality of outcome um, as uh, an idea in this country. And so uh, reading through it, uh, you should be able to find and see that answer. OK, um, but a equality is not an important outcome in society. Well, that's not true. We want equality. And we have it written in our Constitution about the 14th Amendment, the Equal Protection Clause. And it's just something that most citizens agree is, is an important thing. We want everything to be equal. There should be no one that gets more or less or anything like that. Uh, B, there should be more emphasis on governmental action to achieve equality. Um, uh, that's kind of hit or miss. That was in 1980. That was, this was written. And then C is the answer. 
Okay. Uh, and then 31, which of the following ideological perspectives is most consistent with the passage? And the answer is C, libertarian. Okay. Remember, libertarian, that's going to be the government is staying out of your business. All right. You can make your own decisions for the most part. 32, which of the following governmental policies would the author most likely support? And that's going to be D, allowing individuals to purchase marijuana for recreational use. Once again, the government should stay out of your decisions. Why are they telling you that you cannot smoke marijuana? Okay. Um, that would be a libertarian point of view there. Uh, a says restricting individuals from carrying guns in public. Um, that would not be something they would be on board with. Requiring once again, their whole restricting individuals, okay? You get to make choices. Uh, requiring individuals traveling in cars to wear seatbelts. Once again, your choice. If you don't want to wear it, you can make that decision. Uh, minimum wage, or excuse me, minimum age requirements to access adult social media sites. Once again, that's government overreach, according to the Libertarian. Uh, questions 33 and 34 uh, deal with a map. You've seen this map if you paid attention to the gerrymandering stuff that we did. So 33, uh, the map shows the outline of a congressional district, which of the following statements best explains the motivation behind the way it is drawn. Now, if you're looking at the test, which hopefully you are, uh, you can see what we're talking about. If you're not looking at it, it is the Chicago area one where it's called the earmuff one, where they have uh, two big zones and then they go east, uh, excuse me, west, and they got these little strips and it's just a weird looking thing. But the answer is D. It has likely been drawn to pack together voters who are registered with the same party. Okay. And we can see that because of its split, because the way it is split, uh, it does that. All right. Uh, the answer is A. It has been drawn by a political party to group together moderate voters. Well, they're probably not trying to do that. More likely trying to split. Uh, and they don't really concern themselves with moderates. Typically, it's going to be uh, right or left. Uh, it's been drawn cooperatively by both political parties to ensure a fair election. Uh, no. Okay. They don't. They should work together, and I, I personally think they should take the, the whole redistricting out of the state legislature's hands and give it to some kind of independent commission. But once again, as usual, no one asks my opinion on these kinds of things. Uh, but that's not how that works. And then C has been drawn to group together diverse voters to foster highly competitive elections. Well, they're not looking for highly competitive elections. They're looking for wins. Okay. 34, which of the following is a consequence of the way the district is drawn on the map? The answer is A. It will likely lead to a less competitive general election, which could lead to increased partisanship. The whole goal when people redistrict and, and, and gerrymander, because it is done by the political party in charge at the state level, all right, uh, is to try and kind of ensure your dominance for the next 10 years. So you get to redraw again in 10, 10 years. Um, so just keep that in mind uh, when you see those kinds of things. And then finally, number 35 deals with a political cartoon. And... Uh, the political cartoon has, if you're not looking at the test, it has uh, all this cash as a wave, like a big giant wave that's about to crash uh, on a group of people, okay? And the question says, which of the following best describes the message in the po political cartoon? And the answer is A, contributions from special interests have undermined fair and competitive political campaigns. Uh, so remember, they and Citizens United basically said that you can donate as much money as you want to because right, it's free speech. And so they're making the uh, assumption that people are not going to have a fair competitive balance here because more some people are going to get more money than others uh, with that free speech. All right. That is the mock test. Uh, if you listen to both, both parts, 
Hopefully you got something out of it. I apologize for the interruptions with the announcements and the bells and all that kind of stuff. I tried to avoid them, but then they got me after school um, and I can't escape them. So I apologize for that. You haven't listened to that. Uh, as always, as I sign off to this podcast, if you have questions about one of the questions I did not cover in depth because it was a passage or something like that, please find me, text me, email me, social media me, find me at school, whatever you got to do. Make me answer those questions for you. All righty. Uh, and let's figure this out. You've got, as of this recording, which is on 425, you've got a week before the exam. So be sure you're set and ready to go to take that thing. I know you're going to do great. And even if you don't, it doesn't matter. You're still a great person. And uh, I still love you. All right, guys. Y'all take care. Uh, let me know if I can help you in any way. And I'll talk to you some other time. Later, guys.